responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. For the past year since Russia's unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the United States and its allies have imposed some of the most extensive sanctions and export restrictions in history on Moscow. Many of these sanctions specifically target Russia's military industrial complex and are aimed at preventing Vladimir Putin's war machine from acquiring the microchips, semiconductors, and other technology necessary for modern weapon systems. So with Putin's war about to enter its 15th month, what effect are Western sanctions having? What steps is Russia taking to evade them? What countermeasures are the United States and its allies preparing to close the gaps? And what effect will all of this have on the trajectory of the war? Well, if you're like me, you've probably been wondering about all of these questions. Well, I got some good news for you. Today, we have two guests who have just co-authored an important new report that provides some answers. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from someplace in the countryside outside of Washington, D.C., is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to the vertical, Max. Your, your country home looks nice on the screen here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brian. <laughs> Thanks for coming. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s Hip-Dupont Circle neighborhood is my old friend, Matthias Nigavaya, a senior fellow in the very same Europe-Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Welcome back to the Vertical Room. So great to be back, Brian. Great to have you. And as I noted at the outset, Max and Maria were among the authors of the important new report from CSIS that we'll be discussing today. The report is titled Out of Stock, Assessing the Impact of Sanctions on Russia's Defense Industry. It's available for free online. We're going to put a link in the show notes for anybody who hasn't read it yet. And if you haven't, shame on you. Um, but Max and Maria, just to c- congratulations on, on what is really an excellent and very timely report that was beginning that was addressing a lot of the questions that I had and I know a lot of other people had. To get the ball rolling, I just want to hand the mic over to each of you so you can spell out the top line findings and anything else you wanted to highlight from the reports. So Max, why don't you get us rolling? Great. Well, well thanks, Brian. And, and I should really mention that this report really was a, a team effort, both uh, Maria and myself, but also uh, Tino Dobaya from our team and, and Nick Fenton. And also Sam Bendit from the Center for Naval Analysis was uh, was uh, was really critical uh, in putting this together. The, the basic thesis of this report was to try to look at sanctions and say, okay, uh, there's been a lot of work looking at how sanctions are impacting the Russian economy, but what is the impact of sanctions and export controls on the Russian defense industry? Because that will have a real impact on this war. And the conclusion, I think that the basic top line that we come come out with with this report is that sanctions and export controls are having a real impact on Russia's defense industry, but they shouldn't be viewed as some silver bullet that will uh Uh, suddenly end the war or bring Russia to its knees. What we have to understand about the Russian military is it has uh, tremendous stocks of equipment. And one of the things that we are seeing right now is it is utilizing those stocks and its defense industry is very large. uh, And it is able to take a punch here and there and figure out ways to uh, keep Russian uh, forces uh, supplied with equipment. However, what we are seeing is the quality of that equipment is beginning to decline, where Russia is either having to resort to things like bringing out Stalin, Stalinist-era tanks, the T-54 and T-55s, and it's not like they're just sending those straight into the battlefield. Uh, you know, they're trying to refurbish them, they're trying to modernize them, but there's been, you know, but that's a, a real decline from the T-72s and, and especially the upgraded T-72s that were, were being employed. What we're also seeing is that Russia having to send some of its, its T-90 tanks, some of the tanks that it had not uh, used on the battlefield, some of its more advanced tanks, 
uh, likely designated for export. So that demonstrates a degree of constraint uh, that we're seeing on Russia's ability to uh, uh, maintain the present tank forces, that there's been a real depletion. Uh, one of the challenges I should also just note is that in putting this report together, we entirely relied on open source data. We looked at a lot of um, uh, uh, numbers that we've seen from, from past reporting in other think tanks, uh, think tank reports and, and Orex, the Dutch open source uh, uh, um, uh, site that really tracks uh, battlefield losses. But it was sort of, it's like piecing things together and it's really unclear, I think from an open source, exactly the damage that we're seeing to the Russian defense industry. But they are having, I think to maybe sum up here, to really triage. Russia's defense industry is having to go and say, okay, we don't have the microchips that we need or we're unable to actually modernize and build this tank right now at this rate. So we're gonna you know, steal microchips from cars and put them into tanks. And, and so we're seeing a lot of triaging throughout the Russian uh, defense industry, which is then limiting their ability to, to produce and limiting the quality of the equipment that Russian forces are going to be able to, to yield and are yielding in the field. And that's an interesting point, Max, because one of the things we've been that's been coming up again and again throughout this war over the past year is how good the Ukrainians are at MacGyvering their equipment, basically, at taking taking yeah. old Soviet equipment and MacGyvering it and making it do stuff that it wasn't originally intended to do. Um, are, are you saying that the Russians have their own MacGyvers in their ranks? Yeah, I think the Russians have their own MacGyvers. The one issue, the issue I mean, Maria can speak to this as well, but, you know, there's a little bit less motivation uh, for the Russian side than there is. On the Ukrainian side, there is also, uh, uh, you know, corruption in the embedded within some of the Russian defense industry. Uh, so I think that's, you know, a, that's a charitable way of putting it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> a charitable way of putting it. But I, but I, 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 the way I view it is that Russia is right now doing what it, what it, what's necessary to try to keep its forces equipped. You know, we're seeing its ability to produce missiles. Uh, where missiles uh, are, are that are, are crashing into Ukrainian uh, sites, you know, you're looking at them, finding out that they've been built in the last few months. So Russia is trying to do what it can, but it doesn't have the same degree of urgency. And therefore, if you don't have the same degree of urgency, you also maybe lack the creativity. And this is where, uh, and Marie can talk talk more about this, but uh, you know, the brain drain that Russia is having with people fleeing. Uh, Moscow, at the very same moment that you actually need to be really creative in trying to replicate maybe maybe some of the machine tools and other things that you no longer have access to from the West that will uh, will impact your, your production line. So this is where Russia's import substitution efforts, you know, they're going to be able to do a lot. They're going to be able to maintain and maintain the fight, I think, but not at the same quality because... Right. You know, there that that's this is the impact that the sanctions are having, and also the impact of migration in in Russia being kind of a corrupt country. Right, and these are two things I'm going to want to drill into the battlefield impact, and then the second half of the the program about Russia's efforts to sanctions evasion, which according to a new report in the New York Times are are pretty successful. But Maria, what what did you want to highlight from this? What were your top line uh, takeaways from the from the report? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, everything that Max uh, said, the general kind of the broader takeaway is pretty much is um, in line with, you know, the, the prominent saying that Russia is never as strong as we're afraid, but also is never as weak as we hope. And that's pretty much what we see. Uh, indeed, uh, Russia is uh, becoming less technologically advanced. And there's a, actually there's observation in the report that in some ways the weapon stockpiles in Ukraine and Russia, they're moving in the opposite directions. As Ukraine is getting more and more sophisticated and high-tech uh, technologies from the West, Russia is running out of its own uh, high-tech um, uh, weapon type systems, although not necessarily always, uh, that's not necessarily always the case, but tends, tends to be the trend. Uh, and it has, as Max described uh, beautifully, tends to substitute with either older, equipment, some of them are dating back to even 1960s when it comes to, to tanks. Recently, I've seen there are other weapon systems dating back to the Second World War. So my grandpa might as well have used those during his fight against the Nazi Germany. Um, and of course, as also Max pointed out, the very, various creative ways to come up with these Frankenstein types of uh, uh, systems uh, where they pull uh, from different uh, types of components that don't necessarily uh, max and match as nice, uh, match as, as nicely. 
Having said that, Russia still has a lot. And unfortunately, the nature of this war is such that um, pretty much um, even less technologically advanced countries than Russia can come up in today's age and day with some types of weapons, which probably will be extremely primitive. As my friend has put it, you can essentially take a tube, put an engine inside, and here, here you have yourself a missile, and you can send it. If you're Palestine, I know, you can send it to Israel. And it will create some damage, like those of them that made make it there. In case of Russia, of course, you have these stockpiles of uh, uh, weapons left over from the Soviet times. Uh, and there's also uh, the issue of additional stockpiles that Russia may have accumulated uh, in while preparing to this war. Uh, the problem there is that nobody really knows how much uh, Russia did, how much it has. And therefore, uh, any forecast going forward is somewhat um, kind of complicated because of that. Last but not the least, there's a lot of willing um, countries uh, that are trying to assist uh, Russia in its effort, who see these current uh, sanctions uh, as an opportunity for them to make fortunes, you know, while helping Russia to come uh, substitute for some of the components uh, that it lost uh, during this uh, war. And unfortunately, that's the third factor that further complicates the forecast going forward. Uh, our overall assessment is, given this combination of factors, we're looking at the long-term war of attrition. Uh, slower scale, uh, that's probably in Russia's best interest, too, uh, because it's not able to quickly rebuild uh, everything that is lost so far, but it's also hoping that the West will uh, run out of steam in supporting Ukraine. So this is something probably what we're looking um, at going forward in this. Yeah, year. this is something I'm going to want to drill into there, Maria, going going forward. But first, I want uh, because this this how this is all going to affect the conduct of the war, and what I'm hearing is. As the Ukrainian systems get better and more sophisticated and the Russian systems deteriorate, that would suggest to me that time is on Ukraine's side. That's what that would suggest to me. If I if I only had those two data points, right, I'd say time is on Ukraine's yeah. side. But what we are expecting is for Russia to try to draw this out into a long-term war of attrition. Could either of you explain that contradiction to me, or maybe I'm seeing a contradiction that isn't there? No, I, I think I think you're pointing to a potential strategic contradiction uh, in, in, in Russian thinking here. And I think it's premised on a uh, it's it's all they got. It's the only thing they can really do is to um, is, is to uh, repair their forces as they go. Uh, so they're just trying to kind of hold on. And what they're hoping is that Ukraine is also, uh, you know, losing a lot. And it's being uh, uh, having its equipment being uh, replaced by uh, Western equipment, but probably not at the rate that it needs. It may get Western tanks, but maybe not at the quantity that it that it needs. So Ukraine, what Russia I think is hoping for is that it can maintain a stalemate in the present time. That their Western aid uh, for Ukraine is really helping Ukrainian forces, but that if it can maintain the front line and maintain a stalemate. Uh, then Western support for Ukraine will decline while Russia will continue to do what it's trying to do and rebuild its forces. And that will eventually, over the longer term, give Russia the kind of military strategic advantage. Right. Now, that would be a race if uh, the West continues exactly. to do what it's been doing. Exactly. Really, From your uh, mouth to Congress's ears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think maybe just to highlight something, I think Colin Call, the Undersecretary of Defense, made a really important comment uh, in an interview with Foreign Policy, and I saw it today on Twitter, um, where he was highlighting, you know, like part of the challenge right now for the U.S. supporting Ukraine is it has to focus on the immediate needs of getting Ukraine, you know, everything that it can to fight the war right now. Uh, and then when we talk about F-16s and other longer-range systems for Ukraine to recapitalize, well, that's a that's a tomorrow problem. And while the U.S. should really be doing both, if you look at the budget that the U.S. has, which is a lot, and this is mm -hmm. not to diminish it, but they're spending it down really fast. So the U.S. right now, we, are, we don't have the spigots totally open. And this is not just the fall of the administration. It's also Congress that, you know, we need to be sort of dual tracking, getting Ukraine the equipment it needs now and 
looking over the horizon and saying, okay, in one to two years, they really need F-16s or they need fighter jets or they need this. So you need to also have money in place for the longer term. We don't really have that bu uh, bucket of funds uh, right. there. So the everything administration is doing is about now. Uh, and so what the Russians are hoping is that gets exhausted by the current war. And then the one to two years down the line that the Russian right. equipment advantage will really be there. That is the Russian calculation, Max, I'm certain. And that is how they're getting around this strategic contradiction that we were talking about here. But the answer, the I, you you said it, but I want to say it again, loud and uh, expletive deleted clear, um, the, the, because we do have listeners in Washington. If the West continues to support Ukraine, the whole Russian position is contingent on the West getting tired and stopping support for Ukraine. If we continue what we are doing, there is no way Ukraine loses this war. If what if what you just spelled out to me, if I knew nothing about whether this is Russia, Ukraine, or whatever, you have two combatants. One of their weapons are deteriorating, and the others the other is getting better. I would say time is on the side of the the side whose weapons are getting better. All we have to do is continue supplying Ukraine. Uh, Congress, uh, yeah. Western capitals, administration, everybody, please. I mean, because this, this is the, this was the biggest thing I took away from this report. I was very optimistic when I finished reading this, saying, "Wow, all right. Well, if if current trends continue, Ukraine wins." That was my takeaway. Yeah, you know exactly. I, and the one thing I'll say, maybe we'll turn it over to Maria on this. Yeah, the one X factor is is also Chinese support for Russia, yeah. uh, and so we're seeing that play out where where. Uh, we, we talk about machine tools, for instance, and other kind of items that you don't necessarily think about when it comes to the kind of defense industry. We're not just talking about equipment. But if you have production lines going, you know, at, at three at, you know, three shifts a day, for instance, well, you're going to break a lot of the machine tools needed for whatever specialized equipment you're making. And you, so you can't go to Germany or France anymore, and you need to go to China. And that's maybe of a lower quality but it can still, you know, keep those lines going. Right. And that's one of the things China is playing a role in. But then when it comes to the other armament side, that's a that's a critical factor where right. China, if it made the decision to really arm the Russians uh, and back them with artillery, I think it would be a game changer in terms of the conflict. And, and let's hope that they you know, appear to maintain the current kind of current course of not doing that. Yeah, no, uh, that 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 would be a game changer, and I'm certain there is some very tense uh, discussions going on with with the Chinese authorities on on this matter. Maria, anything you want to add to this? Because I know there was. Yeah, I definitely strongly echo everything that's been said, and it is somewhat frustrating, I have to say. Uh, well, I absolutely commend, and as we do in our report, the effort on the side of the West to back uh, Ukraine. It's completely unprecedented. Uh, don't get me wrong, and a lot has been done. Um, by uh, the administration as well as uh, the tax taxpayers and their money. Still, uh, there seems to be some sort of lack of um, strategic vision of what it is the West actually would like to achieve in Ukraine uh, and the war eventually. And um, I would actually expect that to be there after a one year of war, then presented almost existential challenge, I'd say, this war poses for the liberal international order and Europe at the very least. Um, it's fairly easy, you would think, at this point to estimate how much supplies uh, Ukraine needs in order to get a strategic uh, victory and also, frankly, what victory means. Because we've seen a lot of different statements uh, coming from the U.S. officials in that regard, they don't necessarily always align uh, to each other. And when, when it comes to what is being said behind the stage, it's a completely different story altogether. I'd like the you know ideal in the perfect world for um, uh, the western policymakers to realize how existential and important ultimately ukraine victory is in this war and i think we have pretty much and the us intel probably has a lot of data at this point to make quite a convincing case for what is needed in order for, for ukraine to, to achieve that victory having said that two more points uh, there are small points First of all, uh, a lot, based on my understanding, depends on how Ukraine's counteroffensive unravels. I think we'll get a better clarity where yep. both sides are. 
in this war after it happens. Fingers crossed for Ukraine, but we also keep hearing, right, that there's a lack of weapons on Ukraine's side, that the deliveries of uh, certain uh, systems are not as quick as they would hope. But then, of course, it might be just be the lobbying tool. I uh, think I think that's A, a lobbying tool, and I think it's B, they are lowering expectations. I'm, I'm waiting for this offensive. I'm expecting it to go kind of south-southeast toward, towards Militopol. And if it's successful, if, that, if that's successful, that's a game changer. Because that basically splits the Russian forces, uh, you know, diminishes the resupply efforts. And then, as you know, many generals have put it, it becomes a math problem at that point, basically. But exactly. ahead, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Maria. No, 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 that's exactly the great point. Uh, I think a lot of analysts, military analysts, are very cautious at this point to provide, you know, clear war forecasts until we see uh, what is achievable for Ukraine uh, in the aftermath of their uh, counteroffensive and we get about better clarity. Uh, another point I wanted to make uh, on Russia in particular, uh, having said, like, having made all of these points, uh, it's also important that as beyond uh, just uh, sanctions on Russia's defense, the export controls, there's a broader issue of sanctions on Russia, because one thing that comes quite across quite clearly in this day and age and this globalized world, as long as Russia has money, it can potentially purchase uh, whatever it is that it needs. Uh, it will figure out ways through all sort of shady, uh, shady tunnels, right? Russia is the largest country on the world. In the world has a really long land uh, borders with multiple countries that are really uh, ready to seize this opportunity. And as long as, Ru as Russia can pay for uh, those opportunities, it will probably find a way to circumvent sanctions to some extent. So from that perspective, uh, making Russia run out of money, right, and probably right. energy sanctions also become crucial for uh, on the, the long-term outcome. Of this yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point. In the second half, we're going to dive into those countries that are helping Russia evade sanctions. I'm looking at you, Armenia, uh, Kazakhstan, Turkey, and China, not to mention Georgia. Iran. And Georgia as well, yeah. Um, so um, before we move into that second half, though, I did want to hit on one more thing. Um, the, the report looked at like looked at Russia's defense production capabilities and its limitations. It looked at the ability of the Russian defense sector to field core weapon systems. It looked at the impact of sanctions on Russian procurement capacity. Um, Max, is there anything else we should be doing sanctions-wise to choke off? any of these holes or to make what is on the table now more effective? Have we basically dialed it up to 11 when it comes to defense, uh, sanctions that are going to impact the Russian defense industry? Or is there room for escalation here? Um, I, I think we've basically dialed it up is the, is the short answer. I think the more complex answer is that I'm sure there are other things that, you know, are, are coming to light that uh, U.S. and European policymakers suddenly are realizing uh, or the Ukrainians, you know, are getting a weapon system. They're like, oh, there's, we're finding this component and, you know, this company needs to be added or this, this is a really, you know, there's always going to be things that you find and discover. I think what really uh, gives me some comfort is that what we're seeing now is something that I don't think was really there post-2014 uh, when the West put in place sanctions, which is a level of bureaucratic energy and effort so it's not just about putting sanctions and export controls. It's about pestering countries. It's about uh, pestering companies, uh, putting people on notice, using the Department of Justice and, and other legal tools. And from what I can tell and what I've heard from you know law firms and others around town uh, and other companies is that the U.S. is really doing that, and as is Europe. Um, and so I think in some ways there's probably things that we can be doing to tighten them, but it's really, to me, of, to a broader point of uh, of making sure that this maintains a bureaucratic priority. Right. And then this is where I think we'll get to in the second half of the conversation, a diplomatic priority in right. engaging countries, um, because that's going to be, I think, a, a, a real challenge is that there's a market that's been created where Russia needs certain parts and components mm -hmm. and needs certain tools. There's an underworld, how, you know, that's where there's money to be made, and as Maria points out, you know, going after Russian finances is critical, but making uh, sure that you can hit Russia as much as possible. And the last maybe point here is I think sometimes with sanctions, and this is where I think there's an inclination with reporters, where can find, would point out sanctions violations, and that's fantastic, and journalists are doing a great job. But I don't 
think we should expect sanctions to about a thousand here, and to use a baseball analogy, you know, sanctions and export controls, the purpose is to just make it harder, right? right. If Russia has a production line and some suddenly something breaks, and that means that that factory, it's going to take a week for them to get that thing, and then therefore it gets in the, you know, in the way of producing a tank or a missile. Uh, or the system that it has to buy or the part that component is just crappier so the re reliability goes down. That's a win, right? And right. I think that's the way we need to sort of see sanctions and export controls. Is this is about degrading. And you know, if our expectations are that the only way for sanctions to be effective is that they completely deprive the Russian defense industry, well, you know, then they're going to be not, then we're not, they're not. Well, then we, we're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. But the exactly. thing is that there's, there's really nothing new under the sun. Cause I was, as I was, I was prepping this podcast, I couldn't help but think of the late 1980s. Um, when you had, you know, we, as you know, we both know we had this, co uh, this, uh, this uh, COCOM regime in place, the coordinating committee for export controls, which basically we've basically resurrected that actually without calling it that. Um, and also in Dresden, East Germany, during the Cold War, there was a, a component of the German, uh, the German uh, uh, East German Economic Trade Ministry called COCO, whose whole task was to get around the COCOM restrictions. And there was a uh, KGB major who later got kind of promoted to lieutenant colonel around this time, was working in Dresden on that very product. I think we know who we're talking about. Um, so this was um, Mr. Putin. This is one of Mr. Putin's first uh, things he did. Um, as a KGB agent in Germany. Um, Maria, anything you wanted to add before we move into the second half uh, on, on this? Uh, no, generally, I agree with uh, all of the points, of course, uh, that have been made. One thing that we uh, consistently see, and Max, I think, touched upon this, is uh, the fact that uh, the um, multiple journalists, uh, and there's actually no lack of information on sanctions avoidance, right? But there's a lack of coordination there when it comes to uh, different Western countries uh, that could go after this, uh, uh, maybe companies, or try to identify uh, which in which instances and did we see a violation of the sanctions or not, because timing is of important, right? Uh, certain uh, components that Russia uses that are produced in the West, but sometimes before the sanctions were uh, imposed. Technically, it's not a sanction evasion, potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so the coordination between uh, different Western allies in that regard, and maybe creating us of some, or you know, I don't know, body or maybe a, a private institution that monitors those violations, I think uh, would have been would be highly beneficial for many actors involved in uh, going um, uh, in going after those perpetrators who violate sanctions. That sounds to me like it'd be an awesome project for some think tank to take up, right? Maybe write a grant. Anyway, <laughs> on that note, we'll we'll shift gears. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look closely at how Russia is evading Western sanctions and export controls. The countries helping them to do so, including some U.S. allies and partners, and what the West can do to plug those gaps. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from some beautiful countryside outside the D.C. metro area is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served among other posts as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Russia and Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And joining us from Washington's DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend Maria Snagovaya, a senior fellow at the very same Europe-Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Max and Maria, as I've noted, were among the authors of the important new report from the CSIS that we are discussing today. The report's titled Out of Stock assessing the impact of sanctions on Russia's defense industry. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still, for the time being, follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Because we've cut Russia off from importing technologies like semiconductors and encryption security and critical components of quantum technology that they need to compete in the 21st century. We're going to stifle Russia's ability and its economy to grow for years to come. 
So according to a report by the New York Times on April 18th, despite sanctions and export controls, Western technology is still winding up in Russian missiles, calling into question for some the efficacy of those sanctions. According to the Times report, several countries, including adversaries like China and Iran, as well as Kazakhstan, Armenia, and Turkey, have been either providing Russia with technology it needs or acting as go-betweens to broker its uh, purchase. Um, this is predictable from China and Iran. Um, it's deeply disappointing from Armenia and Turkey, uh, quite frankly, um, and I in, in Kazakhstan as well. Max, what do we do about this? I know there have been some different. There's been some difficult diplomacy on this issue with Turkey and even with China. Um, we don't really have much leverage on Iran, but we should have some leverage on countries like Afghan, like uh, Armenia and Kazakhstan. Yeah, and I I think we do, and I think I think that I think we're trying to employ that leverage, and there's a lot of diplomatic uh, engagement going on. I think we're been a little reticent, perhaps too reticent, to sort of uh, bring out the secondary sanctions uh, tool. Um, but I do think that, you know, particularly when it comes to a country like Turkey, I think we've been probably playing very nice and asking uh, for them to, to, to take action, but are kind of waiting for the Turkish election to happen. And then after that, that would, uh, I think, I think we'll We'll see a harder line when it comes to both Sweden's membership of NATO, as well as you know, Turkish um, companies and other uh, uh, actors in Turkey sort of play, uh, playing as a go-between. But, you know, some of this, and I, this is, Maria can maybe talk more about this, but, you know, some of this is just sort of incidental um, trade where there's been, you know, if you're uh, a company in Armenia and suddenly... Uh, a, a company in, Ar in Armenia puts in an order with a Western company. Western company says, sure, checks the sanctions docket. Armenia is not listed. Yeah, we'll sell to Armenia. And then lo and behold, those washing machines or, or you know, mm -hmm. technology uh, ends up in Russia and, and especially amongst countries like Kazakhstan and others that share a land border and, and don't have a customs union. Uh, and I think one of the things that the U.S. has also done is tried to educate, and this is true with Europe as well, educate um, U.S. companies that uh, about that, that if they get a massive order from a country that is bordering Russia, uh, really verify. We're seeing certain actions being taken by these companies to try to make sure that the end user is actually the end user who, uh, who they say it is. And this is oftentimes new for a lot of these companies because these are, you know, the non-military technology are at least considered non-military. It's non washing machines, it's toasters, it's microwaves. Yeah. It's that, and so, you know, so there is a bit, a little bit of slack being cut a lot of co U.S. companies where they're like, oh, we've never actually had to deal with sanctions compliance before. Uh, and then, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is also that the Europeans are taking a really strong line. And there's slight differences between U.S., EU, U.K., and others in legally what, you know, what the standards are. Uh, and this makes it basically impossible to do business with Russia, I think, without violating sanctions. It makes it really hard. You know, there's certain times where a U.S. provider or a European provider may be selling something that ends up in Russia and may be violating sanctions without knowing it. So there's a lot of education happening. There's a lot of effort to make enforcement stronger. There's a lot of efforts to educate the countries and help the countries that may not have worried about their export controls before, such as in Armenia. Uh, but the hammer may need to drop, at least on some of these companies, sometime soon. I just want to stick with you for a moment, Max, on this point before we go to Maria, because as somebody who worked, who had a very long career at the very high levels of the State Department, what can we be doing here? Like, I mean, I understand Armenia's position. Armenia defends enti depends entirely on Russia for its defense assistance. Um, Russia has a lot of leverage on Armenia. On the other hand, there's a very large Armenian diaspora here in the U.S., and, the, and Armenia gets a lot of aid from the United States as well. Um, Armenia is historically a very pro-American country, right? Um, Armenia is very disappointed with Russia for not helping them in the last war against Azerbaijan. Um, so, I mean, I think there's an, there's a target of opportunity there. Turkey you, you, is going to be a, a problem. That's just, Turkey yeah. is going to be Turkey, right? Kazakhstan is another country that I would think Russia would not have the kind of leverage on Kazakhstan that it would have over in Armenia. Uh, Kazakhstan's a big, powerful, and oil-rich country. Um, so there might be a, a target of opportunity there as well. But just looking at this like a former diplomat, what, what are we doing and what should we be? Doing? What are you? What are you? Well, my, 
my guess is, is that when we find out something, when our intelligence community is like, hey, can you stop this? Uh, that we're probably going to the various countries and saying, you know, hey, there's a shipment here that this is actually an illegal diversion to Russia. Please stop that. Now, the question is, if we, if a country just ignores us, then I think we would elevate that diplomatically. It could have real implications. A lot of times we tell a country to please, you know, stop something. And this is something I experienced when I was at the State Department dealing with, uh, uh, especially our non-proliferation bureau. And we go to a country and say, hey, this ship or this, tra this train or this truck, take a look. And the country is like, well, what is it? Please, you know, how do you know this? Please give us your information. And, like, and, and then we say we can't. And then we can't actually. And sometimes that's pretty legitimate. You know, they want to know, like, what do you mean? I mean, this is free trade. This is, you know, we have, there's nothing illegal here. How do we justify making a certain stop? And you, the U.S., are just telling us to trust you. I don't know if we can do that. And so sometimes it's actually not, you know, there's sometimes legitimate points that are made. This is where it's very difficult. And what you want is a good faith effort on behalf of the country to prevent the kind of illegal diversion. And that if we go to a country and really put pressure on them, that they then act and respond. But then we also need to think about what tools are we offering? What incentives are we offering to that country? Are we going or are we diplomatically engaging with Armenia? Are we providing, you know, do we offer additional economic assistance or or a further economic relationship? Are there certain benefits that they're they're getting? And that's, you know, this is about the will on the government actors to sometimes crack down on something that isn't actually may not be illegal for them. So right. this is this is it can sometimes hit a gray area. And this is where diplomacy sometimes it's not always about just throwing the book at countries. Uh, sometimes that that's what right. they have to do. And my guess is we're seeing a mix of that, and we're probably seeing some progress. So we're not you know, hitting these countries as much as we might you know, need to in the future, uh, because we're actually seeing some good faith efforts. That's that's the hope and, and projection right. that I'm currently making. Do you see a world where we do secondary sanctions on countries like Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Maria mentioned Georgia? I want you to kind of weigh in with that a little bit. But... I, I think so. I think I think it would be we would start in a very targeted way that if we knew certain companies or individuals were really working to get around uh, sanctions, that we'd go after after them. Uh, I also think this is going to be a place where the criminal underworld is going to start, you know, the, you know, going to start being activated. And, you know, a lot of the kind of 1990s style efforts of, of going after uh, a criminal, you know, uh, organized crime, I think we'll probably have to really resurrect some of the, the bureaucratic and diplomatic energy that, you know, U.S. put into some of that in the 1990s and, and maybe the 2000s. Because that, I think, will probably come back as well. So sometimes it may be helping countries go after their criminal networks that they struggle to go afterwards. So it's going to be, I think, a really complex uh, effort. But this is where it's not just about setting sanctions and, and walking away. I think it's it's this constant push right. and pull, a lot of focus, a lot of energy. Russia's then, you know, if, if one company gets sanctioned, they'll find another. And, and so it's that kind of whack-a-mole that we're going to have to play. Right. No, your point about about organized crime is, is is very well placed. We all know Russia's basically uh, basically nationalized its organized crime networks and uses them for, for for these very purposes. Maria, I know you wanted to jump in with some thoughts on this, and um, as well as about just a couple Georgia. more uh, points quickly. Uh, first of all, yes, I agree with Max that there is some reasons for moderate optimism. I haven't kept all of this um, reservations in mind and the fact that this is not a game that one can really conclusively win altogether, right? Even looking at Iran, uh, that's one lesson we can take. Having said that, we see that the uh, administration representatives uh, increasingly travel to the region and uh, there seems to be some progress made with Turkey recently, at least mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, supply of uh, certain products to Russia. There was some decrease of those going for Turkey. In Kazakhstan as well, uh, recently there was some positive news coming. Uh, and once again, again, keeping in mind uh, that probably it's in not a game that's totally possible to win, uh, there's some uh, relative degree of success that's achievable. Second thing, some anecdotes uh, coming from the region. Sometimes even the countries themselves and the actors on the ground are not quite aware of the final destination, right? Of course, we're especially talking of the members of the Eurasian Union, whether this is essentially no customs with Russia. And there were some funny stories that now 
Western manufacturers and companies, they asking uh, their uh, um, customers to actually zoom in and show them the address in the streets where they're located just to confirm they're not in Russia. But that's, yeah. of course, not the, uh, again, not a perfect solution because what is to stop them uh, from, you know, filming themselves in Kazakhstan and then still ship to Russia. Uh, two more regions, uh, two more places I wanted to highlight they have not yet figured in our conversation. First of all, Iran, ironically, it's not something where the U.S. has leverage, but one place where the U.S. does have a leverage is the Iranian border with Iraq which is very poorly monitored at the moment. And as we flag in the report, actually ends up being one of the places mm, uh, that allows right. the items uh, that the U.S., for example, sends to uh, Iraq eventually end up in Russia uh, via the Caspian Sea route through, from, through Iran. This is one place where I think the U.S. policymakers could pay uh, close attention to. Uh, second point is the Balkans. And of course, we have this Serbia, but also all of the uh, countries uh, related uh, to uh, indirectly related to Russia. A very common uh, sanctions avoidance scheme is to create an intermediary company there uh, in places like Republic Srpska and uh, to ship uh, certain goods uh, to Russia through this intermediary company. The irony, there's this sad irony, that even Ukrainian companies, some of them, used these channels after the start of this uh, 2022 war in order to smuggle certain goods from Ukraine uh, to Russia, including the engines, the helicopter engines. There's actually a big scandal in Ukraine. Wait, Ukraine and, was smuggling yeah, weapons to Russia? The, the company, All not right. Ukraine, okay. but the... Uh, entrepreneur, that very entrepreneurial oh, okay. uh, uh, head of the company um, that produces these engines, which is one, by the way, one of the weak uh, spots for Russia, and we uh, highlight that in the report, the engine's production. And unfortunately, this used to be the route for which engines manufactured in Ukraine still could make it to Russia even after the war has started. Uh, this is, of course, another area where uh, we could pay close attention to. Marie, you also mentioned Georgia as well, and I've, I've heard rumblings about that. Do you have anything to add on that? Uh, that it's a very common, uh, again, uh, unfortunately, in recent days, uh, the um, uh, tendency to uh, offload cargoes with uh, shipping labels for Central Asia in Georgia and then transport them to Russia uh, through various tracking companies. Unfortunately, Georgia today finds itself in a very unflattering uh, position with uh, growing autocratic tendencies uh, embraced by its leadership. Uh, we've seen recently some progress made by the Georgian civil society in like, uh, but uh, nonetheless, the, um, uh, the problem remains and uh, Russia still retains a significant leverage over political situation in Georgia. That's what it feels like. Again, it looks, it feels like the United States could potentially do more in Georgia in order to prevent uh, these negative trends from uh, taking yeah, no, and I know that we just sanctioned a couple of judges over corruption in the judiciary, um, so we are kind of moving in that direction. Um, and I've, I've, of course, been an advocate for, for greater sanctions against the kind of pro-Russian wing in Georgia, Nivanishvili, and so on. Um, in the remaining time, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm very mindful of it, in the remaining time, I wanted to talk about the elephant in the room, the one country we really haven't talked about in this second half, and that's China, of course, because if China decides... I'm all in with Russia. This discussion becomes not moot, but a lot less relevant than it, than it would have been before that. Max, how do you see the China problem? Do you, I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, um, but so far so good? Or, I mean, how do you see China now on a scale of one to 10, uh, 10 being like the most pro-Russian and, and helping them and zero being completely going along with US sanctions? They're in neither of those places, but where would you put them? I would probably put them in around a three or a four. And, okay. and I say that because I think um, I think it could quickly tilt to a 10. And I think if I were the Kremlin, I would be really annoyed that, you know, you ha you ink this sort of partnership with no limits. And then there's clearly limits and that here you're really, you know, you're really desperate. You need artillery, things that China has and can produce, you know, in its sleep. And and there China's not really providing much for you. I think in general, China is 
providing a lot of uh, economic assistance there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and this is where we see the Russian economy really tilting toward China. And when we get into this report, you know, there's things like drones and other things right. that the Russians are buying off the shelf from the sort of Chinese version of Amazon. But even there, there's been certain restrictions that you know, Chinese companies have put on put on them. Uh, Ch Chinese companies tend to not want to get crosswise with U.S. sanctions and, and potentially put themselves up to secondary sanctions. So, you know, I think Russia is replacing a lot of the ball bearings and machine tools and other things to keep the production line going, uh, replacing Western items with Chinese items. And that has, you know, varying degrees of quality. Uh, so I think, you know, China's playing a role. They're helping, they're, they're enabling Russia to continue its, its sort of war machine, but not at the level that we would expect. And maybe just one qu a quick uh, thought, and this is sort of my off-the-wall theory, that actually Emmanuel Macron's trip, the one country that she's super happy about it, is Ukraine. Because I think if you're the Chinese, and if you were thinking that, man, you know, maybe there's a way of, of doing business with the Europeans and, and wedging Europe and the United States, and we know, you know, China, if, if China provides weapons to Russia, well, the Europeans would, would flip out about that. That would be... Right. Uh, that would be something that I think, you know, we've seen Europe actually be pretty strong in this crisis. And, you know, I think the takeaway, if you're Beijing from Emmanuel Macron's visit, is maybe we can wedge the Americans, so uh, Europe and, and the U.S. So why would we provide weapons to Russia and potentially, and potentially torpedo that? No, the, so that, I think the status quo is sort of going to prevail, at least hopefully. I mean, that's not really off the wall, Max, when you think of it, because China is carefully balancing this. And, and what you're suggesting is strategically, from Beijing's point of view, being having good relations with, with the Europeans and continuing to trade with Europe is more important than helping Russia win this war. And I think I would agree with that if I were looking at this from Beijing's perspective. So I think because I was thinking, like, what what leverage do we have left on China? Right. Yeah. They've been I mean, we don't really have a lot right now. Um, we're we're in, in this almost sort of kind of Cold War situation with them. How much leverage do you really have at that point? And maybe the Europeans are the answer. Maria, anything you want to add on this? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, there's two new recent developments in that regard. First of all, uh, Xi's uh, trip to Moscow, which was highly advertised, was a big deal, mm -hmm. allegedly, but actually did not lead to anything substantive. Uh, no serious contracts uh, signed, and pretty much China maintains, it feels, at least on the surface, uh, the way that the public image that China maintains is very uh, quite the same uh, as it used to be the case. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news uh, just a couple of, of days ago, Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu also traveled to Moscow and uh, uh, met with Putin. And nobody really knows uh, what sort of, you know, mm. agreements um, followed that visit. Uh, I think that's something we should uh, continuously uh, keep an eye on. Uh, two more uh, things. Uh, China clearly... Uh, tries to maintain and the balance between the two worlds and that's the i agree completely with max that's definitely one of the better outcomes that we could expect it uh, at the start of the war uh, however there are two places where china is still assisting russia the dual use uh, goods components right that uh, this is one vehicle it's con that's consistently used so china can always say hey we're not supplying anything bad, right? We are not violating sanctions. The other route that needs to be monitored very closely is Belarus, uh, because mm -hmm. there were certain agreements about Chinese increased investment into Belarusian um, factories, plants, uh, military-related. And we know for sure that Belarus, of course, uh, clearly assists uh, Russia um, in its military sector. So uh, this is one potential, uh, potentially one potential, potential way for which China can try to provide a Assistance without becoming the target of the U.S. of the Western sanctions, and again, I would um, call for close attention paid to this area. All right, no, and that, and that we've we've pretty much covered it here. I mean, I'm I don't have an answer to this on China. I mean, China is the key to this whole thing, though. I mean, they 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 could they could blow up this whole sanctions regime uh, in one fell swoop. I, uh, but I tend to agree with both of you. I don't I, I don't see that happening for a number of reasons, um, none of them being Chinese benevolence on this, um, but all of the most of them being kind of pragmatic, you know, strategic thinking on on, on, on the part of Beijing. They're playing a, a very long game here. We're bumping up against the end. Um, and, and any last thoughts before we wrap it up? 
on China. So, we do. Uh, quickly, <laughs> thank you. On China, I'll quickly add that it seems that Russia has put itself in this position of, um, you know, strategic long-term loser that's not necessarily uh, beneficial even for China to embrace. It has. To, I have to agree that Vladimir Nazemtsev published his article about this recently, where this really bad miscalculation on Moscow's side uh, actually made it uh, a very direct loser of the emerging uh, world order in which even China uh, does not necessarily see it's beneficial uh, to openly uh, support Moscow, even if it's maybe not also willing uh, to let Moscow completely lose in this war. Right. This is just this just comes to show how bad uh, the decision uh, was, uh, uh, made, which was made by Vladimir Putin last year. Yeah, no, that Xi Putin summit, the body language said it all. You looked at you looked at Xi, he looked like a, a mafia, confident mafia leader leaning back at his chair and Putin leaning forward and fidgeting, even though it was in the Kremlin. Um, Max, you had some last last words before we wrap it up? Yeah, I think just one one additional point is that the Russia's inability, I think, to really produce high quality equipment uh, is gonna impact its foreign policy. It's gonna impact countries like India. I think it's going to, you know, arms sales are a really important part of Russian foreign policy. We're going to hopefully do a report later this year that kind of looks at the impact on Russian arms sales. And we're starting to see some uh, uh, effects there. Uh, the one final point I would just make on when it comes to the counteroffensive and especially the issue of air defense and Ukrainian air defense and, you know, stories about Ukraine potentially running short of air defense. Well, Russia is also running short of missiles. Uh, which is very clear. And there's a bit of a issue. A you know, the fear is that Russia can produce missiles more faster than uh, Ukraine can get Western air defense. And that what that does is then potentially bring the Russian Air Force into the war, which is another big X factor that we haven't seen because the Russian Air Force has basically been grounded because of the layered missile defense that exists. So that's something to watch out for and why air defense is so critical because it keeps the Russian planes grounded which prevents them from really going on an effective offensive and which hopefully will enable uh, a better Ukrainian counteroffensive. So mm. air defense is really critical, and that's why sanctions impacting their missiles uh, production is, is also really important. Well, that's something we'll keep an eye on going forward. And if and when you do that report on, 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 on weapon sales, we'll be sure to have you back on to talk about it. Well, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the beautiful countryside outside the D.C metro area has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Moscow. Also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend Maria Slanovaya, a senior fellow in that very same Europe-Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgia. Georgetown University Welsh School of Foreign Service. And as I noted twice earlier on, and we'll do so again, Max and Maria were among the co-authors of a very important report from CSIS that we discussed today. The report is called Out of Stock, Assessing the Impact of Sanctions on Russia's Defense Industry. It's available for free online and will include a link in our show notes. Thank you both for a fascinating discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. Thanks, Thanks. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is filling in ably for Lance Levis in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.